Welcome to Series 9 of Conversations of Inspiration. Looking back to when we started this podcast, I'd never have dreamt we'd now be interviewing our 80th founder. But here we are with someone utterly fascinating and a real heroine of mine, Kenya King, CBE and founder of the Mobo Awards. It was an honour to speak with her this week. She's a truly exceptional woman that I admire greatly. A dynamic force, her vision and incredible work ethic has driven change and challenged the status quo. I couldn't wait to hear how Kanya started her journey, collecting bottle tops to sell at just seven years old to building a brand that's grown into a national institution. Her story is remarkable and a reminder to us all that with passion and determination, anything is possible. This is an episode I just know you'll be so inspired by. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table, and since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses, and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Kenya, thank you so much for your time today. I know we've been trying to do this, I think, for a couple of years and our timings have just never worked. And Kenya, you are absolutely, I've never let you um, get off the hook because I kept on saying, no, but I have to capture your story. You're like the most amazing, renowned entrepreneur, founder, and totally an inspiration to me. So thank you so much for your time today. Honestly, Holly, it's a privilege. And I feel humble even being asked. And I agree, we're aligned now. And, you know, I've always been so inspired by the kind of work you do, who you are, what drives you, and this fantastic platform that you've created. So it's equally a joy to me as it is you. So thank you. That's so nice of you to say. We're in four months of lockdown now. Can you even believe? I mean, I was speaking to someone the other day who thought it was only going to last, you know, a month or so. So we're four months in. How's this time been for you and where are you recording? So I'm recording this from my humble abode in London and I have taken some unusual pleasures from working from home. You know, one of the things I don't miss is the kind of commuting. Mm. So our offices were based in King's Cross. And, you know, the travel time that you spend going into the office day and in the evening, and also the many, many meetings. I mean, there's so many meetings I used to have face-to-face. You know, I've saved so much time. I've prioritised more focused. And I think hopefully this period is given time for a lot of people to kind of reflect on what is important to them what do they value in their life what do they cherish what is meaningful it's so interesting you say that so many founders that I've interviewed throughout this period of time has said exactly the same you know the meetings have gone out the diary they were able to focus on what they're great at and it's been a real blessing for them actually so I've heard that before and it's so interesting that you've said that as well but I'd like to start with your story 
going right back to your childhood because unbelievably you were the youngest of nine children. What were those very early years like growing up for you? So yes, I'm the youngest girl of nine children. So I've got a brother younger than me. I grew up in a council flat in northwest London and it was a very crowded place, as you could imagine. And there were kind of challenges because my mother, despite having so many children, would often take in homeless people. So I had this incredible mother who was always very nurturing and very community focused. But I used to try and kind of escape that household because, you know, they're always kind of lots of dramas, lots going on. And so for me, I spent a lot of time in my kind of local park, Queen's Park. And it's there that I would be daydreaming a lot of the time about what life would have in store for me. You know, I've always believed that, you know, where you start in life does not automatically mean where you will end up and your past only kind of partly defines you, but does not determine who you'll become or what you're going to do. And the sky is really not the limit in terms of what you can achieve. You are. And I think having so much time that I spent in my local park just allowed me to kind of think in time. You were daydreaming, you were visualising. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because actually it is such a key tool, isn't it, to determining what your future could look like. Well, I realise as you get older and you have the pressure of life, most of the time I do not have that precious thinking time. And I look back on that idyllic period and I think there was so much time to kind of reflect, refuel and do things and spend time with family and friends, which was so important to me, especially at that kind of young age. I read that when you were seven years old, you began to find ways of making money, collecting bottle tops and selling whistles. Where did that work ethic come from? And was it due to necessity? Oh, it was very much due to necessity. I remember waking up and always feeling fearful that we might get kicked out of our house because we couldn't pay the bills or bailiffs would turn up and it was kind of a really stressful period so it must have been about the age of eight whereby I was in my local park and I realized that if I if you collected coke bottles and you handed it to the kind of local cafe they would give you I can't remember what it was might have been 5p and at the time I was very very shy but I soon started to kind of pluck up the courage to go to families sometimes when they kind of finish their drink and ask them if they were going to you know dispose of it in a bin may I take it away from them it was kind of I guess really rewarding to realize that I could generate a little income and I soon got into the habit of having a passbook yes and every Saturday I would put a fiver in and it was just wonderful to watch you know the money grow yeah I learned the purpose and value of money at such a young age I remember those books I had one as well gosh it was satisfying wasn't it the you know the way that they typed it in and you could it was just so sad I would love one today and I love how you watched that grow and I know that also times were hard in your family it feels like you really took on a lot of responsibility from a very young age I did take on a lot of responsibility from a young age you know when you're going to school and you don't want to be teased because my mother 
um, would take me to a jumble sale and you could buy clothes very cheaply. And I used to hate it. And I wanted to dress so trendy for school. Yeah. So that's why I needed to earn my own money. And I always looked immaculate. Mm. And so that was vital for me to kind of generate some revenue. Moving on, you were only 13 years old when you tragically lost your father. And you spent some of your most informative years in care, falling pregnant at 16, giving birth to your son, which caused you to drop out of school. And When looking at this, I just thought what an unbelievable amount you were taking on at this sort of tender age. And I can imagine things became extremely difficult for you. Was it hard, that sort of sense that you felt that people almost had determined your future before it even begun? That moment in my life when I became a parent at such a young age was a defining period in my life. I had to leave school with no qualifications. I remember at the time just kind of feeling sorry for myself. There was this 14-year-old girl who was to become a parent and the father of her child was in prison and she asked me to help write a letter that would go to him because they hadn't communicated. So I used to write these kind of poems for her and everybody at the time used to think of her as a horrible bully, but she became this lovely person with a heart of gold and it changed the way I looked at things I went from feeling sorry for myself to realizing that I could make a difference and make an impact Mm. becoming a parent I felt that I had let my family down in particular my mother because she had high hopes for me she wanted me to be a teacher and so can you imagine Mm. when I was to become a mother she thought and many people around thought that was the end of my life And I was determined not to be that person. I thought, if anything, I'm going to work harder. I decided that this low point would not define me. And the more rejections I felt, the more I saw them for what they were, a chance to get stronger, not to get bitter, but for me to get better. And I became determined to pursue my own goals. And yeah, it was a low point in my life, but it fueled me to go on and do more, be more and and dare more. Where does that come from, though? That determination, after getting to know you over a few years, you've got this unbelievable energy and aura. So I can imagine that those things were present when you were younger as well and and gave you that ability to get through, which must have been crazily difficult times. But where do you think that came from? Was it a sense of self-belief? Or did you have other people believing in you, your mother? Or where do you think that came from? My driving, motivating force has always come from my parents. So I grew up, you know, witnessing the trials and tribulations that my parents faced. You know, my mum came from Ireland and my father came from Ghana and they both came out at a young age at a time where there were notices on houses that said no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. And it was just a very, very disturbing period. And so I think my drive has come from witnessing the discrimination that both my parents faced you know my mother being ostracized from her family and friends for marrying someone of color Mm. and my father he seemed tall (laughs) to me as a young person (laughs) he was a tall elegant man he had a strong African accent and 
you know, he couldn't get a job. Mm. The discipline that he gave to me, he was always telling me to have good manners, to be the best I can be. But you know what? Growing up, I was surrounded by negative images of Africans Mm. or positive black representation. Mm. And it's kind of confusing because being African wasn't seen as positive. And yet you were having this experience at home. Which is very different. So for me, my drive has always been, however difficult things are for me, they will never be as difficult as what they were for my parents. Mm. My mother didn't have the freedom of choice. So I made a decision that I was going to be financially independent. People get caught up in that cycle of generational poverty and often in survival mode. And they're focused on what challenges greet them each day, whether it's buying food, paying the rent or taking care of a health problem. And that was the daily life of my mother you know, and so I made that decision from an early age that would not be my life. I was born into a time when there was more equality of opportunities for females, and she did not have that. Oh, you're so amazing. I just sort of want to say that just halfway through the podcast, just the amazing woman you are. You know, it's so interesting, you know, listening to founder stories, John Bird from The Big Issue, lots of people having poverty at the start of their lives. But for some, they see that as a, no, this is not me, you know, and it's that that was sort of inbuilt in you when you were young. But you went back to college to study English and then you went to work as a television researcher. And it was in the mid 90s that you were working very hard. And it was at this point that you saw this gap in the market, an idea to create an event that celebrated urban and black music and its stars. Initially, you were told, and I can only imagine what you were told, that this would not have an audience. And I'm sure finance was very difficult to secure. Would you just tell me about this moment? that you socked it to everybody? So in the early 90s, there was a need for some kind of platform to celebrate the kind of diverse music genres that the establishment at the time was not celebrating or even recognising. I was prepared to kind of make all the necessary sacrifice to achieve this goal. My vision at the time was to create a platform which would change the music industry, help represent a diverse range of music, and showcase emerging talent, which would then hopefully go on to achieve sustainable success. And yes, at the time, I was told, you know, there's not an audience for this type of music. Black music doesn't sell. Brands would not want to be aligned to this. It was too risky. No one would support it. And that negative noise around me was just so loud. But in spite of all this noise, I just talked to all and sundry about the idea Because in some ways, I was hoping that someone else would do it. Mm. It was something I wanted to be part of. It's not something I set out to do myself. Right. When you believe in an idea wholeheartedly and you set it as that overriding goal that you want to achieve, I guess you use every opportunity to research, refine, and tune how you can make it work. And that's what I try to do every step of the way. You started firstly building the business from your bedroom. And then once you got the go ahead, you only had, is this right, six weeks to organise and book the event. When I was told by a broadcaster that you've got six weeks to something, I jumped at the chance. Opportunities like that you have to grasp them and run with it. Mm. And that desire to succeed eventually led me to kind of remortgage my home at the time to raise in their finances to launch their first mobiles and pay for that broadcast and I didn't have the kind of mentors I didn't have 
any advice, but sometimes you, know, you look back and realise that passion and drive that kind of overwhelmed his society succeeds is far more important than education, money, talent. Is that right positive attitude makes the difference, that mindset is so important. So someone says, okay, I sort of see what you're doing. You've got six weeks. How did you even start to pull it together? Well, first of all, I had to move and find an office because at the time I was working from my bedroom <laughs> and it's like, you know, can you imagine? So I managed to, you know, meet like this communication company who agreed to give me desk space. I had, you know, friends at the time who were very kind of excited and enthusiastic at the end. But you know what life is like. Things sort of petered out. But I still remain determined. And I think this is where your why you do what you do is so important. My desire and motivation enabled me to kind of overcome the kind of challenges and obstacles that I foresaw. And also the fact that when you're kind of naive, sometimes naivety can be a positive thing because I didn't know about all the challenges that were soon to come. And in some ways, it's a good thing because I just plunged in. (laughs) I can imagine that the artists were very, very happy because finally there was going to be a spotlight put on them. But the actual pulling it off, I mean, where was it? And how did you raise publicity for it? I was hosting events already and we decided to have a launch party at the Ministry of Sound on a Sunday, because it was just cheaper, that was all. I kind of invited people I knew to turn up and support it. And I remember at the time in talking to artists and telling them my vision, they were kind of very supportive. Mm. And so I think when you have a solution to a problem out there and you inspire people and tell them what you're trying to do, a lot of people want to join your support you in some capacity. And that's kind of what happened to me. You were able to share your vision with people who were going to be very useful potentially in your journey and you were able to sort of quite efficiently tell everyone at one point in time, this is what I want to do. For people who are listening at the moment, whether they're dreaming about an idea and they're saying to themselves, you know, I know absolutely fuck all about this. You know, I have not a clue. What would you say to people listening about how to quieten the voice that tells them that they need to be an expert in something before they start? You know, the initial plunge is often the hardest one. And I think a lot of people can procrastinate. It's easy to do that. It's easy to think of reasons why you shouldn't do things. I would advise, whether it's taking small steps and then looking at what's working and refining and retuning it. So, for example, I reached out to a lot of people to invite them, high-profile individuals, And a lot of the time I would get like a no, we haven't got enough time. Yeah, It's easy for them to give you reasons why they cannot get involved. So I remember at the time when we were reaching out to Tony Blair's office. And at the time we were told that there's no way he would be able to attend. So I said to them, would you mind if we keep in touch with you just in case the kind of small chance that things might change? Now, I've always believed there's a fine line between being the pain and persuasive And so any time we had some good news, I would share it with them. So when Lionel Richie was picking up Lifetime Achievement Awards, confirmed that he was going to be attending, I was able to share it with them. And then before you knew it, I heard back from his office and saying, wow, 
actually him and Sherry want to be there. They've rearranged their schedule to attend. Right. So my advice to people is be prepared for a lot of rejection. Be prepared to many people saying to you no. But when I hear the word no, no means to me not over. The conversation is not over. So I will take advice, take the guidance and tools that have been given to me and go back and reapply it. And often that no becomes a yes. I mean, is there not a better line ever for entrepreneurship? N-O, not over. I mean, that is just unbelievable. I just, oh, I love that. I've got shivers. Going back to the Mobos when they first aired, this music at the time was seen as quite niche. And there you were, this sort of great slot on primetime TV that must have been such a pinch yourself moment. And you succeeded against all the odds. Tell me about that moment for you when it happened. To be honest, I think I was just so caught up in the moment, and I think a lot of entrepreneurial people do this. You don't often take time to kind of celebrate those wins. And it's only sometimes when you look back with hindsight and realise, well, that was something really important that you were able to achieve. Of course, I was proud. I mean, the event was a huge success. And, you know, we'd overcome lots of hurdles to make it happen. And I had taken enormous risks because, you know, the broadcast had said, we've got good news and bad news for you in terms of putting this event on. They were giving me a broadcast slot, but they were saying that they had little budget. And so, of course, you know, I had to get the money where I could. Mm. You know, putting your own money into your own venture, it's not something I would recommend to everyone. But what I would say, it certainly gives you focus. <laughs> you know, it certainly does. My plan B became my plan A. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I didn't allow myself to fail. I had put all my money into this yeah. and I was going to make it work. Just for those who can't remember that first event, can you just like summarise what happened on that event? So on our very first show, we honoured everybody from Jazzy B, from Soul to Soul. I still remember his speech where he said, I've been over 10 years in this business and this is the first recognition I've ever got like this. And he was selling so many records around the world. Mm. That, to me, made us realise that what we were doing is working. We had everybody, whether it was from politicians or people from the sporting world or from film, everybody kind of came together. It felt like there was this phenomenal solidarity standing up against injustice and inequality out there. And, you know, it was just an incredible moment and even now, I often meet people who have said it's inspired them in some shape or form. And mm. I think that is really, really important to me. It's really important to me that we help, you know, thousands and thousands of people, not just talent, but giving people their first opportunity, whether that's getting into, you know, music or whether that's getting into another creative sector. Gosh, the event, as you were just saying there, it transcended division in our society, both racially and culturally. Your driving force, you said it came from when you were a child, you watched your parents, what they were having to go through. Do you think that now over time that the awards have done that? Do you feel that you have 
started to make that change and that difference that you really wanted to from that beginning moment that you visualised the MOBO Awards? I guess from day one, you know, as an organisation, we've always been about those motivating people to be the best they can be. And our ethos has always been that any person should have the opportunity to discover their passion and fulfil their potential. So I wanted every young kid in every bedroom, in any classroom, in every family, in every community to be given a chance to think big and be inspired. My purpose has always been to find ways to empower creative people especially those from backgrounds similar to mine, to be able to live up to their full potential. And really, in order to help others avoid the future of missed opportunities and regrets. Mm. You know, I went to a state school, and sometimes when I bump into friends of mine and we talk about people we went to school with and I ask about what happened to them sometimes they say to me oh such and such is in prison or such and such is you know what I mean kind of lots of negative things that happened to them and I think back to the talent the phenomenal talent that they had and realize that it's just so wasted I've always believed if you can do whatever it takes however long it takes and refuse to quit If you can get that kind of support and have a platform, then success is a matter of time. I've never had extraordinary talent, but simply because I just refused to quit. And that is, I guess, a message that I've always wanted to pass on. What a message that is. And talking of negativity and not wanting to quit, I can imagine that you have also been up against negativity about the awards and the platform celebrating an area where no one had really focused in on. Tell me about how you sort of combated that and dealt with that negativity that must have been coming your way or potentially still does. Yeah, I mean, there are so many obstacles and challenges that have needed to be overcome and a lot of the time they're kind of outside of your control and so I have a I guess a saying that I say to myself don't get bitter get better so I think if I put my focus and energy into just being better whatever we're doing putting everything 110 percent into whatever we are doing and I just block out the kind of negative noise because I put all my energy and positivity into doing things that I can control. And that is such good advice. I'm listening to you and it's like, don't get bitter, get better. N-O is not over. And I look at those two sort of sound bites. You're sort of summarizing the Bible of an entrepreneur. It's just absolutely amazing. And when you actually looked at your ability as this growing woman of talent, and you say you didn't have the talent, but I beg to disagree. You started building this unbelievable platform for so many people, so many artists. It's grown now into so much more than really the awards, hasn't it? It's driven change within industry. Brands have completely established themselves about championing diversity and inclusion. And actually, these touch points and sort of cross music, fashion, media, society. And when you look at all of that, do you feel that that's exactly where the vision was going? that it was going to be bigger than the awards. It was going to become sort of basically a, what, for a better word, a movement. It's always been important for us that we would create something that was aspirational because the aspirational element further applies to everything from giving 
platforms and opportunity to people who wouldn't otherwise receive them. So, for example, what we've tried to do is everything from work experience at the awards show to multiple opportunities in terms of development, fellowships. We have so many different initiatives that we have partnered with other people on, whether that is our mobile help musicians fund which is about offering a package of support for professionals creatives and enabling creatives to explore working innovatively through business or through digital methods or whether it's our partnership with London Theatre Consortium which is about helping mid-level executives of colour to be able to demystify leadership and go on and run by working closely with all the phenomenal organisations, those amazing theatre organisations who are part of that collective. MOBO kind of evolved I guess one of the strands is we are kind of like a media and entertainment company driven by cause, creativity, culture and community. Mm -hmm. And as a kind of vanguard of cultural diversity, we've become that go-to partner for driving, whether it's inclusion and diversity, not just in music, but in film and across wider society. We partnered with the NHS on social campaigns. We've worked with many different people. People care about mobile, what we stand for and fight for. And this is, I guess, recognised for our inclusion in bodies as well as Mm -hmm. for our kind of vast network of influencers who share our values and principles. Do you feel such a weight of responsibility on your shoulders? I try not to think about that too much because, you know, otherwise these things can kind of overwhelm you. Mm-hmm. If ever I'm feeling overwhelmed because I have so many things going on, it's amazing how just taking a little bit of time out, things become crystal clear. So I just try to tell myself, what is the one thing that I can do that by doing it, not only makes everything else easier, but also, you know, makes my life easier. You know, the right strategy in terms of what you're trying to achieve and what you want to do need to be clear in your own mind. And do you feel that being a woman, being a black woman, maybe potentially has held you back in any way? Oh, there's no doubt there's inequality. There's a lot of inequalities that exist out there. You only have to look at the statistics. Someone recently who I know ended up doing a report for the 12 music bodies that exist. And, you know, there's not any black females. There's not any black chair people on those boards. And just the representation for females and people of colour are very poor. So that needs to change. It has to change. Mm. You know, all the current protests we've seen against racism towards black people has rocked the world. For the first time in my lifetime, I have seen corporations who have spoken out very publicly and are pledging to make sustainable changes. These events are symptoms of such deep and long-standing problems in our society. This, for us, gives me more strength and power and influence to want to just do more. I was going to mention that during the Black Lives Matter protests, I read your incredibly powerful open letter called An Inconvenient Truth. And you spoke of an experience that you had back in 2002 when there was false reports about riots at your events. And that actually was catastrophic for you, losing sponsors, you nearly lost everything that you had built. And the letter also spoke about the experience you and your family had growing up and facing discrimination. That letter was very personal to you. Do you feel that we're going to see true change and that people are going to walk the walk, not just talk the talk? I do think so. I do think that we will see a fairer, more equitable place 
for people. I do feel that the time is now that we will achieve better representation in all sectors of the UK. I do think there will be change because I think what matters is what gets measured. And I think young people in particular are ensuring that companies out there are walking the walk and not just talking the talk. And for us as an organisation, what we've tried to do is to see how we can work collaboratively with everyone. You know, we have tried to kind of force closer partnerships with organisations who want to kind of develop all talent, who want to increase the number of black talent, who want to work with black led organizations we want to work with organizations who want to break down these barriers you know and that's really really important for us and i think the black lives matter movement has galvanized so many companies to reflect connect and i've never seen this kind of public solidarity before and i think we're seeing new ways new approaches which i think in time will foster meaningful change. I couldn't agree more. If you then said, what actions would you like now to be seen taken to address these inequalities, especially in the creative industry? What do you think needs to happen? It needs to be top-down and bottom-up approach. You have to start at the top. Mm -hmm. You have to start the boards. I remember in 2015, we worked with the Creative Industry Federation and we produced a report about diversity, including a lot of the findings that were already out there. And I remember David Oyelowo, the actor, speaking at our event. And oh my gosh, his speech was so powerful. I mean, he talked about there being the importance of curators of culture. He talked about the films that he'd worked in. How had there not been that diversity of thought? How mm. the protagonists and the main storylines would have been very different. And it's so important to kind of reflect all stories because that impacts how we think and see about ourselves. So I think it's important for us to see that kind of positive representation of everybody and all our stories and that everyone is at the table. Obviously, we need to see entry level. We need to see the kind of pipeline of talent and kind of support it and represent it. We've got a vision to create a platform where we help organisations who have the aim of uniting, uplifting and empowering underrepresented communities. What we're trying to do is create a kind of curated and platform committed to giving to and shine a spotlight on black excellence. And if we work together, we can achieve so much. As I looked at the business landscape, I realised there was so much wisdom out there which hadn't been uncovered. And yet, sharing it with the world would empower so many. It's why at Holly & Co, we have created a new world you can see, watch, read and listen to today. With a single aim, to support you as you navigate your own steps on your business journey. Bringing you advice and business inspiration like never before. The Advice Hub is a free online library, somewhere to go when feeling lost or needing some guidance. We delve into lessons learnt the hard way so you don't have to with these articles, written by myself alongside experts and other small business founders who share their own experiences. We cover everything from top marketing tips on how to increase your email subscribers to the truth behind working with your partner or how about overcoming parental guilt as a female founder, a subject I know will resonate. 
I'd love for you to go and experience it for yourself. So after this podcast, head over to holly.co and see what advice is most useful to you. And if there's something you'd like to see us cover, please do get in touch. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. I love what you're doing. I remember Frank, my other half, saying before I started Holly & Co., not again. Please, I can't handle another. (laughs) You promised me not again. I don't know if I can handle you doing this a second time. And our conversations about your, well, new venture, I suppose. Do you ever feel that? Do you ever think, oh my goodness, I've just done it again? Absolutely, I do. I think when you're entrepreneurial by nature, you're just always creating work for yourself. Yeah. I have to try often and put ideas in a box and put a key, (laughs) you know, lock the ideas in a box because otherwise, you know, it's easy to get distracted. But I think ultimately at the end of the day, you've got all this knowledge and wisdom for a reason. Mm. I'm at the next chapter of my journey. I feel that I can take all the knowledge I have now and how can I use it to make a bigger impact and create, you know, a bigger purpose. And that's still what's fueling me today. What's your ambitions for the MOBO Awards? How have you dealt with lockdown and how have you dealt with what is a catastrophic sort of situation for all events across our country? Oh my gosh, you know, it's been catastrophic for so many industries. It's also kind of impacted black and ethnic minority people in disproportionate amounts. All these things are linked, to be honest. I think all the kind of structural and systemic racism in everyday life is kind of linked. You know, the poorest communities suffer the worst, really. That's why it's so important, I think, to just kind of see how we can help kind of marginalise communities, see how we can tackle lack of visibility in senior roles, see how we can tackle all these kind of everyday problems. And are you planning 2021? We've still got actually lots of activities taking place this year and also of course, for 2021. So I guess there's a number of strands to the Komobo group. We've got like a production company that's all about creating formats. And we've got a number of programs that are in development at the moment. We kind of have events division where we're putting on whether multi-scale events or smaller events. So whether that is kind of film screenings or premieres or whether that is kind of concerts or showcases or award shows. Then we have the kind of MOBO Trust, and the MOBO Trust is about providing life-changing opportunities for disadvantaged creative talent, and we do that through providing bursaries, studio time, live performance opportunities, masterclasses, seminars, panel discussions, mentorships. My goodness. And then we've got the creative arm, which is about coming up with ideas that's a bit I love coming up with ideas working with influencers and working on campaigns that can change lives and make an impact over generations for generations to come you probably get the key out at that stage do you and go to that bar <laughs> yeah exactly say, hang on a minute I actually might have something just that you need <laughs> Oh, I just have enjoyed this so much. Honestly, you're going to be like the soundbite of my life. You know, you're going to be in my ears. I'm trying to get so much knowledge from you. You're so modest. Obviously, anybody who can spend just 10 minutes in your time is like hours in other people's time. So that's why I try and absorb all your knowledge. Bless you for saying that. If you were at your lowest low, what would that have been on this business journey? 
it's such a difficult question to answer because it changes over time when you get a chance to put things into perspective. Yeah. When I reflect on past problems and I'm able to do it more objectively, I don't react in the same way. Yeah. So what I might have thought of as my lowest low has changed over time and often sometimes can become your biggest high because we're all going to grow, progress, change. And I think about when I became a parent and I thought that my world was over and that was it for me, but it's become my biggest joy in my life. And I try now to look at problems the same way in that moment because I think that make us figure out who we are, what we're made of and our life's purpose. Good answer. My goodness. I've never thought of it that way. And I absolutely agree with you. You know, it's the way that we would deal with these blows in life that you're picking yourself up off the floor. And you can look back at them now and you know that you felt that. But now potentially you look back and you think, was that the worst thing that ever happened or the best thing that ever happened to me? You've been able to look at it with different eyes, your older eyes, your wiser eyes. And I just think that's such an incredible way of looking at it. Um, You're amazing. You're going to be like my ringtone or something (laughs) with your sound bites. I just can't cope with it. And you're such a dynamic force. Your spirit, when I meet you, this smile and this energy and these eyes of kindness is an amazing thing. And I just think you're bloody amazing. And I just wish you everything. And I hope that that Duracell battery keeps driving you forward because I think you're the only woman for the job. You're the only one that's done such change so far. And I can't wait to see what you do. But it's that time now where I'm going to hand over to you to read a letter that you've prepared to yourself, your younger self. And I just want to say with all sincerity, thank you for sharing a piece of your soul with us today. Thank you. (laughs) This letter, oh my gosh, it was a hard letter to write, but you're right. It's a letter of love and a letter from the soul. So, okay, I'm going to take a drink and then here we go. (laughs) Dear Kanye. I'm writing this letter to my younger self to say that you have no idea how hard you're about to work, how much you will need to sacrifice for the resilience that you would develop to cope with the journey ahead. But it will all be worth it in shaping you as a person. You will get more than you expected and you'll be better than you think you could ever be. You are on the most incredible journey. I'm sure a lot of people remember their first week at primary school. You vividly do, as this was your first time you were consciously aware of feeling different. You were excited when the teacher announced to the class that we're going to have a play at the end of the year and she wanted everyone to participate. You were told they were going to perform Snow White. So when the teacher asked who would like to play Snow White, despite your incredible shyness, your hand shot up straight away as you absolutely love drama, even at a young age. When everyone slowly turned their eyes on you, it dawned upon you that you weren't actually white. So you slowly lowered your hand and felt thoroughly embarrassed and ashamed. This was your earliest memory of realizing that you were different from the rest of your class. In your classroom, there were no books or stories about little girls that looked like you. All of the princes, princesses and heroines you read about were white and you were often teased and asked what it was like to have one black parent and one white parent. You didn't quite know how to answer that as you didn't know any different. So you'd say, what's it like not to have that? 
all you knew was that to be seen as being pretty and being popular in your class, you had to be white and have European hair. At that time, you weren't to understand how the lack of role models and representation bothered you and caused you so much anxiety and would play such a significant part in what you would go on to do. Your parents had high expectations of you, and I know you felt you let them down when you became a young parent. Your father, he was an elegant, dignified man with immaculate manners. He had high standards, always telling us to wash our hands and cover our mouth when we coughed. It was a far cry from the images on our TV screen that depicted Africans as savages, so it was not cool to be African at school. Nor did you realise at the time how important it would be in your life to find the space and tranquility to daydream and think. Growing up, whenever there was any opportunities, you would go to your local park to spend time playing with friends or rounders with your family. As a child, you loved the warm, sunny heat on your face. So much happened in that park. From having a crush on a boy to trying out my new roller skates, there was always a new adventure. You would often walk through the park to visit many of your good friends. You all knew exactly where to meet, which was at the bandstand. It was a beacon landmark and there would frequently be singing competitions taking place, one of which two of your sisters entered, much to your dismay. Although it was a stark platform, your vivid imagination enabled you to visualise all sorts of elaborate backgrounds. In a pressure-packed life, you will find that it's becoming increasingly more important to create more space, to think in a way that will allow you to build on ideas while ensuring your life will be balanced. As it turns out, you are wise to spend so much of your time in your park, trying yet again to get away from the daily conflicts at home, the relentless health issues in your family, the cramped council flat with all the stresses and strains, constantly trying to earn money to ensure the rent was paid and you would not get kicked out. You will never forget this time in your life and how often you would long to see your mother walking at a hurried pace across the dewy grass rushing towards you. The weather would be brisk and you'd just begun to notice it was starting to get cold. You had completely forgotten the time and ended up spending the whole day and early evening in the park. There was a usual urgency in your mother's footsteps and you could see the sense of relief as she spotted you meandering close by, as if you hadn't a worry in the world. Your beautiful mother came from Ireland and your father from Ghana. They both came here at the age of 18 to pursue their dreams at a time when there was notices on houses state no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. It was a very bleak period with not only discrimination being rife, but also a move to a new country away from family, friends and support networks. You spent a lot of time in the park dreaming, imagining things about yourself and others, and spending a great deal of time reflecting on the past while thinking about the future. That wide open space was a huge contrast to your life at home, which was noisy, cramped, but full of anticipation. It was probably out there that you began to realise that only you could change your circumstances, and this is where your determination started growing. You had many dreams and ideals that inspired you, but you understood that you needed discipline and focus to turn them into reality. I would advise you to learn to trust yourself more and not allow fear of failure to hold you back. Be bold, be brave, have confidence in yourself and invest time in being the best you can be, as your father was often saying. In talking about your father, I wish you had not thrown two important letters away 
The first letter was when you wrote to him after going into a care home, when your mother had a nervous breakdown and left home, followed by the rest of your siblings. Your father kept you off school for a few days. He was worried that your older sister would come and find you. And yes, she did. She asked you to choose between staying at home on your own with your father or being with the rest of your family and finding your mother. You chose to go with them, but suffered enormous guilt. So you wrote a long letter to your father, apologising for causing him so much grief. It ended up in a bin when we found it after your father's death. Your little brother teased you so much about it, you left it there. Why were you not mature enough to have held on to it? Then, when your teacher asked and begged to be allowed to publish the second letter you wrote about the death of your father at 13... Why did you not agree to do it? Why were you so embarrassed? She said she would publish it anonymously, yet you still refused. It was such an important chapter in your life, witnessing your father's suffering and being the last one to see him alive. Your circumstances are what will shape you and give you the big motivation to do what you do. Your father's strong words to be the best you can be. Your mother tirelessly working to provide for her family and those disadvantaged around her. And your own hopes and desire to create a path all these things will motivate you and affect your career. These things may never leave you, but they give you the strength you need to believe in yourself when overcoming obstacles. You have to identify what is going to make you stronger, what is going to give you the determination you need to overcome the many hurdles along the way. More and more, you will develop a strong desire to find ways to empower creative people coming from similar backgrounds to yourself and help them to live up to their potential and take control of their own destiny so that they will be able to help avoid others make a future of missed opportunities and regrets. In the hectic pace of our lives, we often forget to slow down, pause and take a breath. So I'd like to end my letter by giving you this advice, which I hope you'll reflect upon while you keep moving forward and build on from yesterday. Cherish memories over things. Spend more time with those you love. Make sure they know how much you appreciate them. Don't let your work engulf you as there's more to life than this. Take good care of your body, nourish your mind and build your spirit. Remember that it is health that is the real wealth. Always be curious. Your thirst for knowledge will allow you to grow. Life will throw obstacles at you. Be grateful for them as they will strengthen you. You are never too old to dream about the possibilities of what comes next, about how life can be better, pushing yourself and allowing yourself to do more, dare more and be more. Each of us are born with a purpose and we want our lives to matter. When you find your purpose, you'll be living the kind of life you believe you were meant to live. This will motivate you to do more of what you thought was impossible. You may aim for what I call purposeful fun. It has worked for me. Lots of love and respect, Kanya. Oh, Oh, what a beautiful letter. The fact you shared some of those stories with us all listening is this power of being vulnerable. And I thank you so much for being vulnerable and sharing those things with us about your feelings for your father, about the feelings of being that little girl who wanted to be Snow White and what that must have felt like when everyone turned around at you and looked at you. I now think about her realising that she becomes you (laughs) and how absolutely proud she would be and how she knew that. That's why she visualised all those things in the park. And I just uh, thank you from the bottom of my heart for sharing so truly honestly with us all today. Thank you, Holly. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me to be part of this incredible platform you've created. Thank you. Oh, 
that's a wrap. I'm going to cry all day. (laughs) If you've enjoyed this episode with Kenya, I'd love to suggest listening to my conversation with Asma Khan, founder of Darjeeling Express. You can find Asma's interview by searching Conversations of Inspiration wherever you get your podcasts. And if we've helped or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support really does mean the world to me. It helps spread the word and will inspire more people to build a life they love. And for all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co. Holly.co.